When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a light on the hill from a bush that's burning. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we are back with part two with archaeologist, the amazing Jody Magnus. So thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one yet, this part will not make much sense uh, because you'd be starting in the middle of a conversation. So go back, pause, uh, and go back and listen to the first part, uh, and then you can listen to this part, and it will make sense to you. Uh, if you've already listened to part one, then welcome back. Uh, as usual, uh, I would direct you over to our website, which is the main hub of everything that is the Deconstructionist podcast. Uh, all of our, our episodes uh, for free, streaming through the website, www.thedeconstructionist.com, going back over seven years. We are now, I guess we'd be considered the OGs of uh, the, the Deconstructionist movement, if you can even call it that. Um, but thank you again for listening. Uh, if you want to support us, you can find links through our website as well uh, to our Patreon uh, and also uh, to our web store. So if you want to pick up some merch or if you want to support the podcast and all its uh, various operating expenses, uh, we've got some cool stuff on Patreon, including unedited, uncut uh, versions of these episodes. So, uh, And I released them the week before. So you can actually get early access to the, in the interview in its entirety, especially if it's a two-parter. Um, unedited, uncut. So all of my many flubs uh, you can hear in there, which is always fun. Um, what else? What else? Uh, link to us on social media through the website as well. Um, and of course, our email address is there too. So if you have questions, thoughts, suggestions, uh, feel free to email me there. Uh, otherwise, thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate the continued support. Thank you to Clay Kirchenbauer or uh, his uh, stage name, Force Clay, for uh, the use of his music in the out intro and outro um, and uh, all the different people who have supported uh, through various means, whether it's graphic design, uh, website design, uh, photographs, uh, all sorts of things. Um, yeah, all that's in the show notes. So, And of course, our sponsors, our weekly sponsors. So uh, right now, it is HelloFresh. So check that out. I know there's a commercial at the beginning. Um, I really do support it uh, quite quite heavily. My daughter and I actually just got our shipment today, um, and it's tradition that she gets to cut open the box and see which uh, meals are there, and she gets to pick which one she wants me to cook her. And so we do that uh, pretty frequently. We've been subscribed to it for a while. As a single dad, it's just uh, it makes things easier for me. I don't have to go grocery shopping, and um, it, it, it makes sure that I have something healthy <laughs> built into the meal. Um, I do know how to cook. I want to point that out, but um, it gives me some some new ideas, uh, and it's been very very helpful and and kind of fun. We can do that stuff together. So that is one I really do advocate for. I think it's a great um, product, so I definitely highly endorse that one. So check it out. Uh, links in the show notes for that, um, and obviously in the commercial, um, got all the uh, discount codes in there for you. So check that out. Otherwise, without further ado, let's get to it. Let's finish. Finish up this interview with Jody freaking Magnus. It's 
So talk a little bit about, um, I think one of the things that might be interesting to folks is when we talk about, um, you know, just the historicity of, of the Bible and of the copies that we, that, that, that we have found, um, I, I think a lot of people are often surprised when we say we don't actually have the originals necessarily uh, <laughs> to any of these, these books. Like what, what are the oldest uh, copies that we've found, been right. able to find over, over the years? Well, you know, the originals, <laughs> that depends on who you ask because, yeah. I mean, of course, well, let, first of all, let's clarify, right? So first yeah. of all, let's say that, let's clarify the term Bible, right? This mm-hmm. is, by the way, one of the problems with, you know, there's there are arguments about whether, you know, these debates going on about whether the, the with the advocates arguing that the Bible should be taught in school, right? That kind right. of thing. Yeah. Or you have like in Washington, the Museum of the Bible. But what nobody ever discusses is when you say the Bible, that word means different things to different people because yeah. not all people use the same Bible, right? So when you say the Bible, do you mean the Protestant Bible, which is what probably most Americans would think of, or the Catholic Bible, which happens to actually differ from the Protestant Bible, or the Hebrew Bible, right? Which, of course, does not include the New Testament. And so anyway, so so first of all, you have to clarify what you even mean, right, by the Bible, okay? And then the original author, right? And that then would, again, so if we're talking about the Hebrew Bible, but anyway, never mind. So even if, so whether you're whether you're Jewish Christian or whether you're Jewish Catholic or Protestant, the first part of your Bible is going to be the five books of Moses. It's going to start with the five books of Moses, right? Uh, Genesis, and then working on from there. And then you got the other books, right? You got the prophetic books, and you got you know the anyway all the other. Okay, so so first of all, who wrote so the five books of Moses are so called because they're attributed to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? Well, we, and you say, well, we don't have the originals. Well, yeah, right. We don't have the originals because (laughs) actually from a scholarly point of view, no credible scholar that I know of thinks that the five books of Moses were actually written by Moses. They were written (laughs) later. They were written, right. They were written later by other people, men. Sorry. I always say to my students, sorry, it's always men. But anyway, they were written later by other people, men who, uh, and, and, and by, different groups of men actually. And, and then at some, you know, they underwent a long process of editing and redaction and blah, 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 to reach the form that they're in now. And uh, whoever it was who put them together originally put Moses's name on them because that gave them greater authority, right? Like you can't argue with the authority of that Moses got these from God on Mount Sinai. I mean, right. 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 So we talked about his own death, right? At one point, we don't have, right? We don't have the mosaic five books of Moses. We don't have that, right? Okay, so right. Um, so most, so again, this is you know, biblical scholars disagree about exactly when the five books because the five books of Moses are the earliest, right? Of of all of the books of the Bible, whatever Bible you use, the five books of Moses they're at the beginning because they're the earliest. They were written first. Um, but biblical scholars do not agree when exactly the five books were written. They certainly weren't written at the same time. And, and there's some sort of a process, right, of, that you can see. And, and the fifth book, Deuteronomy, is the latest <laughs> of the five. But the question is, when exactly were they written down? And, and how, you know, they certainly include stories and traditions and information that was circulating before they even got written down. So can you trace how far back does this information go and is it historical or not? And how do you know? Um, and so 
again, saying, qualifying that among biblical scholars, which I am not one, I'm an archaeologist, but among biblical scholars, there's a huge amount of disagreement about exactly when the five books of Moses, each of the five books of Moses was written down and edit and all of that. I think uh, it would be safe to say that many biblical scholars would date the beginnings of the writing down and editing process as being, let's say, safely, we could say 8th, 7th centuries BC, maybe a little earlier, depending on who you ask, and then going on from there, right, into the following centuries, right? So we certainly don't have any copies of the five books of Moses that go that far back in date. Although we do have very interesting, uh, a number of years ago in 1980, um, an Israeli archaeologist, Gabi Barkai, excavated a, a tomb in Jerusalem that dates to the 6th century BC, um, late 7th into the 6th century BC. Uh, it's a site called Ketafinom, where he found the only undisturbed tomb assemblage ever discovered in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's a living city. There's lots of rock-cut tombs, but over the course of the centuries and millennia, they've been pretty much robbed out of their contents. And he found one repository in a rock-cut tomb that had never been robbed out of its contents. And in that repository, he found two little silver amulets, very thin sheets of silver that had been rolled up, apparently worn like amulets, maybe on a necklace or a bracelet or something like that originally, that were inscribed, among other things, they were inscribed in biblical Hebrew script, the, the ancient Paleo-Hebrew script, um, and they were inscribed with a version of the priestly blessing, may the may uh, God shine on you and blah, 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 that, right? Mm-hmm. And pretty much the same as you find it in, in the Hebrew Bible. And so, um, so this is the earliest evidence that we have that that, that prayer goes back uh, at least to, let's say, the late, late 7th, 6th uh, century, which is ballpark around the time that, you know, the, these books were being first edited and written down and everything. Anyway, so, okay, so there's that, the, leaving aside that. So, but we don't have any other actual copies of the biblical books that go all the way back to that period. Until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest copies of the Hebrew Bible that we had dated to the 9th and 10th centuries AD, so the Middle Ages, basically. The Dead Sea Scrolls date mostly to the 2nd and 1st centuries BC, some of them a little earlier, some of them a little later, and so they then take us back much closer to the time when these books were first edited and written down, and we can see if there have been changes made over the course of the centuries as they got copied and recopied. And I know that people always want to know, well, then were they or not? And the answer is, well, yes and no. And the reason why the answer is yes and no, and this is, by the way, one of the reasons why it's impossible to explain these things in a sound bite. You know, when you do, a lot of times when you do like interviews for like radio or TV or something, and they want like a sound bite, they want you to say yes or no. And it's like, but no, but it's more complex than that. So you can so, Nuance, yes. Nuance, right. So you have to like explain. So um, here it's yes, yes and no. And the reason is that today there's one version of the text of the Hebrew Bible that is used everywhere. It's what's called the Masoretic text. So if you open up a copy of the Hebrew Bible, not in translation because translations vary, but in Hebrew, anywhere in the world, you will find the exact same text word for word, letter for letter. It's used universally. It is the authoritative version of the Hebrew Bible that is used universally now. 
But in the time of Jesus, in the time of Qumran, that was not the case. There were different variant texts of the Hebrew Bible, of the biblical books, that circulated among the Jewish population. Now, most of the time, these aren't hugely different variations. Sometimes it's a word here, a word there, a sentence here, a sentence there, but they are, they are variants. And it wasn't, by the way, and you might have a problem with this if you think that this is the word of God from, you know, Moses on Mount Sinai, right? Anyway, <laughs> um, but it wasn't until after the time of Qumran, after the time of Jesus, that Judaism decided that there should be one standard authoritative version of the text that everybody uses. And at that point, all the other variations ceased to be copied and disappeared. And what we have among the Dead Sea Scrolls, therefore, are copies of what's called the Proto-Masoretic text, which serves as the basis for the text that we use today, but also other variant texts that had never been preserved until now. And so when you say yes or no, well, actually it is kind of yes and no, because we have Proto-Masoretic, but we also have some other variant texts that we never had before. That's, fa that's fascinating. As, as a, a history geek, uh, you know, that, that, stuff is always fascinating to me. It always kills me when, you know, you hear stories about, well, these documents were actually located by somebody and kept in a locker for years. And then, you know, half of it disintegrated and you're like, no, oh my gosh, we're, <laughs> we're losing valuable history here, you know? So when, when these documents were, were recovered with these other variations, what were some of the observations, I guess, um, when comparing those versus the Masoretic texts that we see today? Um, I'm not sure exactly what you mean, but I will say, and again, this is not my expertise, so I have to rely on my Dead Sea Scroll specialist colleagues. Uh, but, um, you know, the, so one of the pro one, some of your listeners who are old enough to remember the 1980s may <laughs> recall that in the 1980s, there were a lot of scandals and controversies about supposed delays in publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that was because of the way the original publication was organized. DeVoe had put together this team of scholars, and they were the ones who were allocated the scrolls for publication. Uh, and, you know, nobody else was allowed to, to work on them except them. And for various reasons, it took them a really long time, and some of them never completed the work. And then in the 1990s, the whole thing got reorganized, and new people were put in charge. And ultimately, what happens at around that time is that an Israeli scholar named uh, Emmanuel Tov was put in charge as editor-in-chief of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And his, one, his particular expertise is in the biblical books um, and in scribal practices. And, and what he says is that, uh, is that the Proto-Masoretic text ultimately was chosen as the authoritative, you know, becomes the Masoretic text, because it is superior to the other variant texts that we have among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, exactly why he thinks it's superior uh, and what he sees there, I couldn't tell you that. But, um, but you know, I mean, I, I think that the most important thing, generally speaking, is to understand that, that, the, that these, what we consider to be sacred texts, were fluid at that time, because again, we expect to see something, you know, in print, this is it, this is the word of God. And, and Jews in that period apparently didn't have that expectation, right? That, that, you know, you could have different variants of the text. You could also have, uh, there's a, a genre that scholars call it Qumran rewritten Bible, where literally these ancient authors would take biblical books and rewrite them 
uh, and make changes to them. And that seems to have been okay. Uh, and for us, it's like kind of mind blowing, right? You, like, so it, right. It just goes to show how much we really didn't understand about Judaism in that period. And, and for people who are interested in early Christianity, this is, you know, the background to the world that Jesus lived in. So the the Dead Sea Scrolls it sounds like they they really taught us a lot about kind of the the mindset and and the ways in which uh, early Judaism operated and what was important, not so much important. Yeah. And and I think it kind of goes hand in hand with one of the things we've discussed in the podcast before. Just this this idea that this you know when we talk about the Bible, it's really a collection, a library almost yeah. of different types of writings written in different languages yeah. over hundreds and hundreds of years, and so. Uh, that's, that's interesting. And one of the, one of the criticisms that, you know, that we often hear, you know, from, from, uh, folks who would probably, uh, profess to be more like atheists or, you know, what have you, um, is just this idea that, well, we can't trust the text because, um, originally it was, um, orally, you know, passed down and, you know, we all have played the phone game in kindergarten or, you know, second grade, Mm -hmm. whenever that was. And so we know that, you know, through the phone game that things get twisted and, and warped and the ultimate uh, original meeting gets completely changed around. Um, so uh, what, what does the, you know, it feels like the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of almost say, look, there were some differences here, but, you know, for, for the most part, what we have today is pretty accurate according to this earlier manuscript we have. Yeah, no, actually that's true. I mean, for the Proto-Masoretic text, that's, yeah, that's it, pretty amazing, right? Um, yeah. But one of the things that, that the Dead Sea Scrolls show us, in addition to this kind of fluidity of, of the text, is that there was also no concept, or I don't want to say no concept, but there was no established canon of sacred scripture. Mm. Because, you know, today, again, uh, people expect to have a canon of sacred scripture, whether you're Jewish or Protestant or Catholic, right? You have, or for that matter, Muslim, right? You have a a volume, a book between two covers that has your sacred texts in it, right? That's your canon of sacred scripture. Uh, and there was no such thing in the time of Jesus. Uh, and, and part of the reason is because you don't have books, codices, you have scrolls. And scrolls mean that you can have a much more fluid situation because you can have all those scrolls on your shelf and you can just pull off whatever you want. You don't have to put it between two covers and decide what to include and what not to include. Um, and so it's clear that, you know, the at least the community at Qumran was very, I would say, eclectic. And, you know, they had just all sorts of stuff on their shelves um, and a lot of works, Jewish religious works that were never included in the Hebrew Bible or the Protestant Bible or the Catholic Bible, um, but which apparently spoke to them and had some degree of authority um, to them and and. And at least some of these works, you know, uh, circulated among other groups of Jews in this period as well, not just members of this sect. Uh, so, so this idea that you should just have this this strict canon, this closed canon, that that didn't exist at this point. That that's fascinating because one of the arguments that's always used commonly, especially within like uh, you know American Christianity, is well, you know, uh, this is the way it's always been. Well, now we're finding out that mm, maybe not, <laughs> you know. No, right, no. If we want to go I back mean, to our roots, then yeah, no, yeah. No, I mean, I do think it's fair to say that there were certain books by this time, so again, by the time of Jesus, there were certain books that all Jews considered authoritative. You know, the five books of mm-hmm. Moses by this point are considered authoritative, right? Um, 
many of the prophetic books, apparently, right? Consider so a lot of books considered authoritative, but not every there were then there were things that well not quite clear, and it's not until centuries later that you know Judaism decides what goes in and what goes out. And every year in the fall, I teach a first year seminar for first year undergraduate students um, on Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the assignments that I give for one of the classes is that each student has to design their own canon of sacred scripture. Uh, what would you include and what would you not include in your canon of sacred scripture and why? And you can't just like replicate what's there. And, you know, so you have to like indicate, right? And if it's, if you, you're going to say, well, I'm including it because it's divinely inspired. Well, how do you know that it's divinely inspired? Right. So yeah, you got to think about it. And then you think about, well, who, who was it who made the decision to include what's in our canon of sacred scripture? Who made that decision? Right. Yeah. It was all men, first of all, (laughs) Um, all elite men. Right. But they were right. They were men who had a certain agenda, a certain perspective, and they're the ones who decided with all of the stuff that was floating around, what got included and what didn't. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Oh, that's, that's, that's a really fun exercise. Um, <laughs> that's really interesting. Uh, and, and to that point, I think that's a good transition to talking about uh, what archaeology tells us about what things were like in those days. And you mentioned the fact that, um, and by the way, you got me thinking about what history would look like if only Bill Gates wrote from his perspective, uh. <laughs> you know, like that was not my life. Um, but, but you're talking about, you know, like obviously male dominated society, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, they kind of dominated education as well. So like, uh, what was literacy like in those days? What would the original audience been like? What were the living conditions like? What does archaeology kind of tell us about the time of Jesus? What was that sort of like? Right. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the question of, of how much of the population was literate is a matter of debate among scholars, like everything else. Uh, so my, my personal view is that, um, that, the majority of the population was illiterate or functionally illiterate. Uh, because, you know, in order to learn how to read and write, you had to have uh, 
means to do it. And, and most of the population, I think, did not have the means. Um, uh, could some people maybe just make out letters or sign their name or whatever? Yes. But, but could people actually read the biblical text and understand it? Most of them, I don't think, could. And that's why you get the development of, of this institution of synagogue, and I know what everybody thinks synagogue is today, but originally synagogue is basically an assembly of Jews, Jews gathering together, um, mainly on the Sabbath and festivals, to have the law, that is the five books of Moses, because the five books of Moses contain the laws that Jews believe God gave, God gave the people of Israel to observe. So in order to be able to, if you're a Jew, by definition, you're living according to the laws in the five books of Moses, you needed to have those laws read and explained to you. And that's what a synagogue was. A synagogue was an assembly of Jews gathering together, probably on days when they weren't working, to have the law read and explained to them, right? So again, I think the majority of the population was, was you know, incapable of doing that on their own. Um, with regard to living conditions, one of the things that I like to say about the ancient world is that if we could be retrojected back 2,000 years in time, First of all, we would be bowled over by the odorama. Uh, and, and the second thing is we would all be dead within a week. Uh, and that's because we, because the living conditions were, well, by modern standards, were terrible, right? I mean, there was very little in the way of sanitation and hygiene. Um, if we're talking about a place like Judea, which is the area around Jerusalem, right? So, it, you know, there are like months and months when you have no rainfall at all. And not a lot of sources of, of fresh water. So basically, you're using water that's stored in cisterns for, you know, and Jews were immersing themselves for ritual purification in some of these pools. Also, um, I mean, the, the disease that was being spread, um, people were using, literally were using human excrement to, uh, to fertilize their agricultural fields, what's called night soil. That was a very common practice in the ancient world. Um, and so, so... Even even in the best conditions, and you think about, you know, Imperial Rome, somebody like Augustus, who every single one of his designated heirs predeceased him until he finally, you know, gets down to Tiberius. So even in the Imperial family in Rome, they weren't, you know, they were living among these kinds of conditions. And and it's like analogous today to going to places like, let's say, you know, if you're coming from the U.S., going to a place like India, right? So what, or, you know, whatever, Mexico, whatever, where you you have to be really careful. You first of all, before you go, you get all your immunizations and everything, and then when you do go and take the medications, and then when you do go, uh, you're very careful about you know not drinking the water and and not eating vegetables that have been washed with you know whatever right all that stuff, and and that's exactly so. So if we could be retrojected back two thousand years, that's the problem we would have. Uh, we would not have the immunity to those diseases. And and by the way, people the, in the ancient world they did have. They did have diseases and stuff, but if you survived to adulthood, you had acquired a lot of immunity, right? Doesn't mean you couldn't get sick, but you had acquired immunity to a lot of that stuff. But even so, I think that the conditions were appalling by our modern standards. It was filthy by our modern standards. And there was there was a lot of disease and, you know, sickness and stuff like that. And I mean, we don't think about it today, but, um, you know, today we walk around, we have great teeth and, you know... They couldn't, they didn't have great teeth. They, by the time you were whatever, I don't know, maybe in your thirties, your teeth were, you know, you're losing your teeth. So they're, they're, what are they eating? They're eating gruel and they're eating, um, you know, uh, 
uh, stews where everything's been boiled down to mushiness because, you know, you have bad teeth. Um, and, you know, uh, if you got injured, right, you lost a limb or you lost whatever, you, you didn't get that back. Uh, I mean, you got some sort of, uh, you know, I mean, think about, I mean, we all have some sort of a, I don't know if anybody who has like absolutely 100% perfect health, so pretty much everybody is does something. They didn't have that. So pretty much you didn't have glasses for crying out loud, right? I mean, I would have been dead. Yeah, I'd be dead meat. Contact lenses, right? So, so right, you think about it. And so everybody's walking around. So first of all, if you made it to like my age, you'd be, I don't know, really old. But, um, (laughs) but, but even if not, and and then of course to think about, you know, uh, how so many women died in childbirth, for example. Um, So, the conditions were, were terrible, terrible. And I actually think that, um, that a lot of the, you know, so we, what you have in this, again, my opinion, you have a large percentage of the population, like 80% that are, that are the lower class. Now they're not destitute necessarily. A lot of these people have houses, they live in villages, they have, you know, they farm land or they have a craft that they work at or they fish or whatever. Um, but they're, but they're basically just living above the subsistence level, right? They're, they're not starving most of the time, but they're not, they don't have like a lot of disposable income, right? That's a very small proportion of the population. Um, and if you think about it like that, I think that that's, I think that that's Jesus's target audience. I think Jesus's target audience is the majority of the population that didn't have the disposable wealth, didn't have disposable income that are basically just kind of living, you know, right above getting, you know, and, um, and he cares about them. And, you know, I think that's who he's, he's aiming at. Doesn't mean he didn't have wealthy followers. He did. But I think that the people who he really cares about are those, are those poor people. And, and I think we see this reflected in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it makes it makes me think about uh, just the way that information was obtained in those days. And, and yeah. as you said, you know, if, if if the vast majority of the population and Jesus' target audience are, you know, on the on the lower class side and weren't educated, could not read, then they're dependent upon what they hear. And so it almost makes you think that Jesus must have been this amazing, incredible electric speaker, you know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and those who, who people followed in those days must have been uh, pretty charismatic individuals. Yeah, yeah, um, and we know that that there were um, there were a number of these figures uh, in the first century AD who, kind of like Jesus, you know, preached in certain different things and acquired uh, followings. Right, uh, Jesus is the only one who lasts long term, but um, but yeah, I mean, people were were at least some people were looking for that kind of a message, um, for sure. Yeah. So from an archeological standpoint, like I know from a historical standpoint, you know, sort of the evidence I was listening to, uh, uh, a talk about this the other day, just about the, the actual evidence that we have for, uh, the person of Jesus. And, you know, (laughs) a lot of that is just reliant on the, on the gospels and, Uh, they're written decades apart, and right. we have a little yeah. snippet from Josephus, but there's not yeah. a whole lot. And, you know, in ancient right. history is hard to begin with. Yes, I can and, only imagine how much more difficult from an archaeological standpoint. Right. That yeah, must be. I'm laughing because 
uh, I belong to the local Rotary Club. And at lunch today, one of the members asked me exactly this question. What evidence do we have that Jesus existed? Oh, boy. Um, and yeah, no. And so look, so, so first of all, I, and I said, we don't have any, um, we don't. And that's because Jesus is exactly the kind of individual who you would not expect to have any evidence of. He was a lower class Jew. Uh, and generally the people who leave their imprint long-term in archeology span or in history are the upper classes, the wealthy people who could afford to build and dedicate big buildings or monuments leave inscriptions behind, had were written about in the history books or whatever. And individuals like Jesus just don't, you know, they don't leave any any identifiable, you know, imprint in in the historical records. So or or in the archaeology. Um, so, you know, with regard to the to the gospel, so I, I told I told my my fellow Rotarian that uh that one thing we have are the gospels. So, you know, look, so if we take the Gospels, which of course are not contemporary with Jesus, but Mark is thought to be the earliest of the four canonical Gospels, thought to have been written somewhere shortly before after the year 70. If Jesus is crucified around the year 33, that means that within 40 years of Jesus's death, we have a corpus of traditions about him. And so first of all, it would be one of the world's greatest conspiracy theories if within 40 years of his death, this huge a corpus of traditions had had exploded about him. Um, and I don't believe in that kind of conspiracy theory. Um, and the other, and so that's one thing. Another thing that I told my, my fellow Rotarian is that, um, you know, when I look at the gospel accounts, and particularly, again, I focus on, you know, the, the, the um, synoptics and especially Mark and Matthew, but not only, the picture of Jesus that that I see there is is consistent with what you know what he's what he's saying that what's presented his content everything it's all consistent with what we know about Jews and Judaism in his time, and so to me there's nothing there that sounds out of place out of context that it doesn't doesn't make sense or anything like that, um, and so you know I I mean I just I I. Of course, we don't have any archaeological remains. So, I mean, I, so sometimes people, you know, I get contacted a lot for TV documentaries, either to consult with or sometimes appear in. And a lot of times they're doing like the, um, the Holy Grail, for example. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, so there was one documentary that contacted me a few months ago and they wanted to do the Holy Grail and they wanted to know, they wanted me to say, oh, yes, you know, could this be the Holy Grail? And I was like, look, we don't have the Holy Grail. As the the cup that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper, short of finding an authentic ancient cup that has an authentic ancient inscription on it that says, this is the Holy Grail that Jesus drank out of. Right. There's no way. we I, And I said, we might actually have found the Holy Grail. It's possible that in excavations in Jerusalem, pieces of a cup were found, and that's the cup that Jesus drank out of. How would you know? Right. There's no way. <laughs> right? So, so no, of course we don't have identifiable archaeological remains. It's just after his death, you know, when, when especially, you know, from the time of Paul on, but not only, but anyway, when, you know, you begin to get, and then later that you begin to get, you know, all these tr people starting to then identify spots as 
Well, okay. But no, in his own lifetime, no, he didn't leave behind any, any remains that we would be able to identify in the archaeological record. Do we have remains? Maybe, but not that we could say. Yeah. Well, and it, it seems like the same issues would, would, would be present when you're trying to authenticate like all these other alleged holy relics that. Right. Exactly. Well, right. 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 Splinter exactly. of the cross and yeah, all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And a lot of those traditions actually um, really arise in the Byzantine period after the Roman empire becomes a Christian empire and Christians are allowed to worship openly and you begin to get an influx of pilgrims visiting sites in the Holy Land, which were associated with Jesus, and people want to see, well, where, you know, where is this spot, right? So that, a lot of those traditions go back to that, right? Yeah. Where was, where did John the Baptist be, baptize Jesus? Mm. Right, where, where did that happen? Okay, so by the Byzantine period, there's a spot where a monastery was constructed. Does that mean that that's where he actually was baptized? Who knows? There's no way to know. Right. Well, and and the other big one, too, obviously, is, you know, I'm sure, you know, they would build a tourist location around if they could figure out specifically where his tomb was. Well, they, yeah. Now, see, now that's an interesting one. Um, Because that's the one case where I think we actually, we have indirect evidence uh, for the authenticity of the site. No, that's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right? So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre um, was built by Constantine, the first the first Roman emperor to legalize Christianity, right, in, in the fourth century. So we don't have any churches before the time of Constantine because Christianity was outlawed. Uh, and and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built by Constantine, enshrines the spot the, the spots where Christians believe, most Christians, not all, many Christians, anyway, believe that Jesus was crucified and buried, right? Um, now, uh, the problem, you know, the problem is, is that the church was built about 400 years after the time of Jesus. Um, no, sorry, 300 years after the time of Jesus. So you would have to assume that the local Christian community somehow preserved the memory of that spot during that intervening time. Um, most, I'll say many, I think most actually scholars accept the authenticity of the location of the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Because, number one, it is the earliest that we can go in Christian tradition. In other words, we don't have any churches before the time of Constantine. So that's as far back as you can go. But also, very, very importantly, just outside the walls of the church, outside the walls of the rotunda, are remains of Jewish rock-cut tombs from the time of Jesus. Which isn't to say that we can prove that Jesus was laid in a rock-cut tomb in that cemetery, but... It does prove that the site was a Jewish cemetery in the time of Jesus, and one of the one of the criteria for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre being authentic is that it would have to lie outside the walls of the city at the time Jesus was crucified, because he, he crucifixions and burials were carried out outside the walls of the city, and in fact, the gospel accounts describe Jesus being led through a gate outside the walls of the city, crucified on a rocky outcrop, and then laid in a nearby rock-cut tomb, Right. And so the fact that you have a, a cemetery, a rock-cut Jewish cemetery from the time of Jesus right there indicates that this, in fact, was a, the site of a cemetery in that period. Now, again, archaeology cannot prove that Jesus was laid to rest in, one, in, the rock, in a rock-cut tomb in this cemetery, but that's as close as we come. 
And I, I happen to think that, you know, that's, that's about as strong as evidence that you're going to get from archaeology. But, you know, part of all of the problems with sort of looking for, because again, a lot of the TV documentaries, they want, they want to focus on an artifact, you know, that Jesus belonged yeah. to Jesus or Jesus touched or right, whatever, a physical, right, a physical piece of, and this is, again, this is a, a good example of the kind of question that archaeology, the wrong question to ask of archaeology. This is not the kind of thing that archaeology can provide an answer for or can provide evidence of. So what I always tell people is, well, you know, from archaeology, we have a really good idea of what the city of Jerusalem looked like in the time of Jesus. We can, we can reconstruct pretty accurately Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, what did the temple look like? What did the rest of the city look like, right? Where he was sentenced to, we, we have a really good idea of all of that. To me, that's really valuable. But to yeah. actually have a physical artifact, you know, that Jesus handled or touched or owned or whatever, that's something that archaeology cannot provide. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. It's, it seems like it, it becomes problematic as soon as you try to drill down too narrowly, uh, but but broadly speaking, there's so much to know and so much to learn uh, from from archaeology. Um, I know we're, we're we're getting close to time, but I, I wondered if you could uh, kind of share what are what are some of the more recent archaeological finds that you find really fascinating. Well, aside from my own dig, <laughs> of course, with our mosaics. Uh, so one thing that I've written about, which I think is really important, is uh, is the discovery of of the tomb of King Herod the Great at Herodium. Um, so, you know, Herod, of course, is loosely associated with Jesus. So for speaking of Jesus, uh, through the, you know, the account of the massacre of the innocents in the gospel of Matthew. Um, but that same Herod, the great from an archeological perspective is really important because he built stuff all over the country that we still have the remains of, and he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And, um, and so, when Herod, who built all over the place, built stuff, he always named things after people. But there's only one site that he named after himself, and that's Herodium, which is located very close to Bethlehem. And apparently he named it Herodium because he planned it to be his final resting place and everlasting memorial. And Josephus actually says that when Herod died in the year 4 BC in Jericho, his body was brought by procession for burial in Herodium. So we knew that he was buried at Herodium, but we didn't know where the tomb was. And for literally decades, an Israeli archaeologist, the late Ehud Netzer, looked for Herod's tomb at Herodium. He wasn't the only one who was interested in finding it, by the way, uh, without any success until in 2007, um, Netzer found Herod's tomb at Herodium. Uh, and wow. uh, it's a whole long story, but in my in my humble opinion, uh that is the most important archaeological discovery in the country since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the reason is because, you know, we have no writings of Herod himself. We have writings about Herod. Josephus writes a lot about Herod. Uh, Josephus, by the way, uh, lived after Herod's time, right? Herod dies in 4 BC. Josephus is born in 37 AD. So like 40 years after uh, Herod dies. So, so Josephus never met or knew Herod. He's drawing his information on other sources, mostly uh, the biographer of Herod, whose name was uh, Nicolaus of Damascus, whose writings are lost. Um, so most of our information is coming from Josephus, and he gives a pretty skewed perspective of Herod, very negative. But we don't have any writings of Herod himself. So 
the discovery of, of Herod's tomb at Herodium tells us how Herod wanted to be remembered for posterity and therefore sheds a lot of light on Herod the man. Uh, and as I say, I've written a lot about this. And at some point when my schedule clears up, I'm hoping to go back to it because I think it's really interesting. Um, but that, that to me is a really, really significant discovery. And it got overlooked. It got overlooked. It got overlooked partly because at around the same time that discovery was made, a faux documentary was broadcast on the Discovery Channel claiming that the tomb of Jesus and his family had been discovered in Jerusalem. I oh, won't say geez. more than that because <laughs> the producer is very litigious. Oh. Um, but anyway, um, that siphoned off um, pretty much all the attention from what was a really important uh, and legitimate archaeological discovery. Anyway, so. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fascinating. And mm-hmm. I I had not heard that. And that's, that's a shame. That is an absolute shame. Yeah. There there are a lot of, unfortunately, it's like, you know, we're inundated with kind of, uh, you know, these, these television programs that are obviously trying to excite and get people's attention, but sort of painting in broad strokes oftentimes, um, you know, kind of taking artistic liberty, we'll say. (laughs) uh, Anyway, I'm not going to say any more, but yeah, that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but yeah, you know, um, I think part of the part of the problem in general is that the more sensational the claim, the more attention it gets, right? And of uh, yeah. so, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the unfortunate part. But uh, this is thank you so much for coming on. This is absolutely sure. fascinating. I, I know people are going to love this, so I appreciate yeah. you uh, spending some time before you fly off. So. I know, right? <laughs> Tomorrow. Well, uh, nothing but the best of luck to you in your in your um, excavation and uh, in your work ahead, and uh, hopefully you have a safe flight there and and back. Thank you, thank you, thanks for interviewing me, and it was fun. Thank you so much. When did the size of our buildings become a foundation? We lay.
Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.